0: Welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Rice, and this is the show that's all about taking your health, body, and life to that next level. I've got a fantastic episode for you today on how to hustle and hack your way to happiness. We'll get to the interview with our special guest in a moment, but before we get to that, I want to tell you about what we have going on. First, check out our store. We're having a holiday sale. We are have a meal plan. So, if you're interested in learning exactly what you should be eating, the types of recipes you should be following, go to legendarylifepodcast.com/slash store and check that out. Also, we have a fitness and nutrition made simple for busy people video course. This is something I spent hours of researching and then, you know, hours of putting it together and also editing. It's a fantastic course. And if you're looking to get a jump start on getting your health and fitness handled, this is the course for you. That's on sale as well. So, again, legendarylivepodcast.com/slash store. And don't forget to get your biohack guide from the homepage. I did that episode last Wednesday. And if you'd like all the resources in a PDF downloadable format for free, of course, because I hook you up like that, make sure you go to our website. I don't think I need to say the the URL again, but and, and download your free guide. I also want to tell you on the website that you can join the waiting list for CEO strength, which will be starting. I have the date January 11th we have a limited amount of spots because I can't take hundreds of people. The quality would, would go down very quickly. So we do have limited spots available. And if you've been waiting, if you've been listening to the show, you've been hearing the success stories about people who've joined the coaching group. If you want to participate, the new app is incredible. It's a course. It's not even a coaching It's a course with me as your coach. It's simply fantastic, and you can get on the waiting list there. So let's talk about today's guest, Dr. Anna Akbari. She is a return guest, and last time she was here talking about style and how our style affects our personal image. Today, she's talking about why you should treat your life as a startup. We all know startups are hot and we all know that some startups want to create massive success. So what she's done is she's written a book called Start Up Your Life, Hustle and Hack Your Way to Happiness. And it's all about using the philosophies, the mindsets, the tactics and the, the tricks that Silicon Valley entrepreneurs use to create massively successful businesses. And I wanna tell you something, I've already started reading this book and it's just incredible. I love this fresh approach to treating your life like a startup because if you know anything about the startup culture, if you've watched Silicon Valley on HBO, which I've seen every season of, fantastic and super funny show, there are just a ton of things that go wrong and you gotta know how to handle them. And it's also completely normal for pivots to happen. It's completely normal for failures to happen. It's completely normal for complete shifts of direction to happen. And that's what she's talking about. And I love this approach. I love the philosophy. So if you're at a point where you're at a crossroads in your life, maybe you just got out of school and you don't know whether you should go back and get your master's degree or PhD or law degree or whatever. Maybe you've been in a business or a career for a while and you wanna pivot to something different, but you're not sure how to go about doing it, or whether it's even right to do that, or if you've got something else going on, perhaps a divorce, a bankruptcy, a midlife crisis, whatever, this philosophy can help steer you in the right direction, as the book says, to hustle and hack your way back to happiness. So without further ado, I give you the interview with Dr. Anna Akbar. Dr. Anna Akbar, and you welcome back to the Legendary Life Podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. And you were on last time on episode 185, The Definitive Guide to Building Your Personal Image Through Style, where you walked us through how we dress, how we carry ourselves, and how to step that up so we can get where we want to go in life. But this time you're back with something different in fact you just came out with your new book congratulations I have it sitting in front of me start up your life hustle and hack your way to happiness great to have you back on the show
1: thank you yeah I'm really I'm really excited to dive into this topic and of course there is a chapter in it actually on what we discussed last time about kind of hacking your image and and now we can sort of address all the larger topics from the book as well
0: Yeah. And one thing I want to dive right into, because if you're listening right now and you're curious about Dr. Ian Akbari, go back to that 185 episode and listen to it. But we didn't hear your story like you told it in this book, in the intro. I just got the book. I was reading through the intro and and it blew me away. And can you tell a little bit about that story and how that story led you to writing this book?
1: Yeah. So, I finished my Ph.D. in 2008, which, as you may recall, was not the most prosperous year for anyone.
0: That's right.
1: It was pretty monumental in terms of it being one of the worst years to enter the job market. And at that point, you know, I was in academia, but I also had been dabbling in entrepreneurialism. And so I was kind of figuring out what was my next big move after that. And so I really started examining my life from an entrepreneurial perspective because I was living in New York City. I had no money. I had a tiny apartment. I was single. Life was hard, you know? And yet, I had this degree. I had all these ideas. I had all this excitement. I felt very positive about the trajectory that I was on. But if I was just living for milestones, which is something I talk about in the book that I think a lot of people do, is just living for happiness when they hit milestones, then I knew it was going to be a very long time before I felt I was thriving. (laughs) So I needed to start thinking about how I could make small incremental changes that would boost My happiness and my well being, and my feeling of success starting immediately, not five, 10 years from now.
0: Yeah. And I think that's such a great point, especially because what I hear from most people is it's all about hitting that milestone. It's not about enjoying the journey or the process at all. It's about being perfect, which we can get into because I know you talk about it in this. And then Once you're perfect, you achieve these things like a car, a house, a wife, a family, a husband, kids, the new job, the promotion, whatever. And far too often, people don't find happiness when they get those things, do they?
1: No, it's the same. And I use this example sort of fleetingly because it's often cited. And that's the lottery example. You know, winning the lottery doesn't make you happier in the long run. You know, part of it, of course, has to do with your own biology, but it's also about the choices that we make. And I think where a lot of self-help books or gurus fall short is we hear a lot about positive thinking, which is fantastic. We hear a lot about doing things like exercise and diet or the importance of community, but where they often fall short are on the everyday Habits, the everyday experiments that we can run in our own lives to self optimize and from a very practical way that doesn't require lots of money, that doesn't require you to get a promotion first, it doesn't require you to find the mate of your dreams first. There's so many things that we can start doing every day and that can be exciting and interesting and fun to test out now. And you can really start to feel. The difference. And that's the stuff that I focus on in the book.
0: Yeah. And you talk a little bit in the beginning about positive thinking, go meditate. And yeah. you mentioned something interesting. A lot of the self-help gurus, they're already at a point where they're producing some good stuff, but it's like you said, you have to read in between the lines to find out how it applies to you because they're at this place where I remember Brendan Burchard. I like him a lot. I really enjoy his material. I've learned a lot from him. But I remember watching a video of him saying, you know, confidence and you just got to look in the mirror and just you got to believe and say, you know what, I'm confident. And I was just like, I feel pretty confident, but i never would have done that. And I would never tell anybody to do that. I just That's don't right. feel like you wouldn't believe it. So how is your book and what you say, how is it different? You mentioned practical experiments. Can you give us some examples?
1: Yeah. So one of the fundamental ideas is actually just embracing experimentality and finding small ways to experiment, whether it's what you eat for breakfast or how you approach a woman or what shirt you're wearing on your interviews. These are the very small ways that you can start to mindfully experiment with the choices that you're making. And then you'll see small responses from your body, from the people around you, from your own mental state. And from that, you can start to stage bigger, more complicated experiments and start to optimize and really feel the difference today. And that's so much different than just saying, just think positively and, you know, the person of your dreams, it's like the whole idea of the secret, you know, sure. that you just think. And I think that there is, and I, I say this in the book, I think there's power in positivity. I think there's so much power in meditation. I'm not throwing these things under the bus. I'm saying those things alone are not what make Silicon Valley companies what they are. They're not what gives them the edge. And I think the same holds true for who we are. As individuals,
0: Yeah. One thing I really like about the title, the concept of the book is a lot of people go down these roads where they're following the conventional wisdom, get good grades in school, get into college, actually the route that you, I'm sure you took to an extent before you branched right. out and became an entrepreneur. But I know there's a lot of people listening to this podcast now and they're in their careers. They've been in them That's for right. 10 years. I know one guy, he wants to change his career from being an attorney to going into like maybe doing some public speaking and some inspirational speaking, motivational mm-hmm. speaking. I know another person who's listening who wants to go back to school and get into the health and fitness industry. So, mm-hmm. and he's thinking about quitting his job, getting a school loan, going back to school. And going that route, being in school for four years before he starts to get out and do his thing. And I'm really curious, since you have both sides of the coin, you have the highest level of achievement, your PhD in academia, right? Degree wise. And you also became an entrepreneur. What would you say to someone who's perhaps contemplating going back to school or maybe even in school right now and thinking about what they're learning is going to apply to what they do in life?
1: Well, two things come to mind. One, I have an entire chapter dedicated to the life pivot. and life pivot. Yeah, Yeah. and as, as many of your listeners may know, pivot is one of the favorite sort of darling terms of Silicon Valley and the startup industry. And what pivoting actually is, is failure. You pivot when what you're doing isn't working. But they're clever in that they don't really recognize failure as failure that failure taught you something. And that's the message that I press throughout the book is to embrace failure, to know that, you know, it took the creators of Angry Birds 52 games before they had a hit. 52, you know? And we sometimes think a lot, this first attempt at fill in the blank with whatever you want, didn't work. Or I tried a second time. Well, have you tried 52 times? You know, (laughs) we tried 152 times. You don't always know when is going to be the time that sticks. And while you are, and this is where I use people like Ford and Edison as examples where they, they persevered. They were not just geniuses. They weren't just people that had fat investment. These were people that failed and failed and failed and kept thinking about the problem from new ways. And I think our lives are like that too, you know, and maybe we don't even fail. Maybe we just reach this point where we feel stale and we're not feeling as alive. And so I think actively allowing yourself to even entertain the idea of pivoting is first of all, very scary. The reason we don't do many things is out of fear. We are more likely to stay in a job we hate because we fear the unknown, we're more comfortable with the complacency and with the fact that we are unhappy than we would be with the fear of something that might be better for us. And so I think going through the exercise of allowing yourself to play and reimagine what your life might look like in some of these other scenarios, embracing risk is incredibly important. And it's something that, again, comes very naturally to entrepreneurs, but that many other people have trained themselves to think that risk is reckless. Mm. And I would argue that certainly some risk can be, like maybe being a free diver without having enough experience or being one of those crazy winged suit guys that jump off of cliffs. You know, those are maybe not the greatest (laughs) risks. But when it comes to pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, I use the analogy of surfers because I love surfing and I love surf culture. And you think about the surfers sort of put themselves in the waves in a position where they could get harmed or they could eat, get eaten by a shark where they could get caught in a riptide. And yet there's so much beauty and so much exhilaration around what they're doing that it it balances it out. And I'm not telling people to go and jump off of cliffs, but finding small ways to address your fears and to make yourself less risk averse, whether it's taking an improv class or being more aggressive in the way that you ask people out and putting yourself out there or challenging yourself to speak up in your meetings in ways where you might be silent. These are small things that actually can be incredibly empowering and can help to give you the license to contemplate a bigger, seemingly riskier move, which might be a life pivot. And play, I want to go back to that concept of play. It's something I encourage in the book, and it's something that is at the very bottom or not at all on our to-do list, because we think that's the stuff of kids. What place does play have in our adult lives? And yet, play is where we allow our brains to go into that sort of B-roll where, you know, some people feel it when they're running or they're in the shower where they have these great ideas. And what I call serious play really allows you to access those areas where you tap into what makes you happy, what you really desire, great ideas, things that might change your life course significantly. And the other thing I talk about in terms of those kinds of risk taking is embracing a life in transition. Hmm. because we're always in transition change is always upon us sometimes we have moments where we are nudged into more dramatic change than we would like or had anticipated Absolutely. but often and i'm sure you've had some experiences like this and i share some you know around my own relationships and health battles i've had that have been a real wake up call for me to realize that the complacency that i had slipped into was not doing me any favors. And it took that dramatic act for me to personally embrace a life lived in transition where I don't need that everyday quote unquote perceived security. And so can feel like I can put myself out there and do things that, that maybe there's not a guarantee
0: for on a daily basis.
1: And, you know, it's interesting to talk about one of your listeners contemplating this transition. Did you say he was a lawyer?
0: There have been so many have written me, but the one I mentioned, one was an attorney and the other, I think he's an engineer who wants to get into the health and fitness, but yeah, the attorney wants to do the motivational slash inspiration, or maybe even he's not quite sure what it is. Well, it's
1: funny because I talk about law school in particular, poor lawyers in this book. I don't want them to think that I hate lawyers because that's not true. But law school has become a sort of, as I think a good example of a default career. That a lot of times people go into it because it seems like a responsible, practical thing to do. And I think we need that intersection of positivity, practicality, and passion. And if you just go with one of those, any one of those (laughs) is not going to serve you. (laughs) But if you find that sweet spot of the intersection, then that becomes a more sustainable path. For you And a lot of lawyers, that is not what they've done. And, and they may love law school, but then they hate the everyday existence of lawyering. I mean, associates at law firms are consistently rated the uh, most unhappy profession for a reason.
0: <laughs> I'm only smiling right now and we're doing this interview uh, video style. We're keeping the video on. One of my friends is there. Right, and he's actually getting away from law because he hates the practice of it and like getting into his parents' business. Well, I love this approach. I love hearing how you're challenging people to step up and just do these little things that can have a huge monumental shift in the way we feel about ourselves and our happiness. I wanna go back to what you said about the whole mindset thing and how there's this old school thinking where we're all on the same trajectory and we avoid doing anything too risky or putting us out uh, too much. In fact, I was talking to one of my clients yesterday and she was talking about how she's Panamanian and her kids, she grew up in this culture where you wanted to be perfect with mm-hmm. your presentations, with everything you did. In fact, for this school, she was talking about her kids. And, and for this school, like all the, the parents would help their kids with these presentations because the kid's going to mess up if he or she does it on their own. So the parents had to get involved and do it. And she was talking about this new school that she's sending her kids to and how it's so different from the way she grew up. And they just put you out there and just just go and do it. And what I wanted right. to ask you is... Why do you think people have that mindset where we're afraid of failure? Like it's this big, scary word. We're afraid of negative feedback or putting ourselves out there. We're afraid to deviate from the path that our parents took or perhaps the path that our parents want us to take. You're a sociologist. So what what do you think? What's your perspective?
1: Well, part of it has to do with these mental models that are created where we believe We have these, and you know, it's sometimes that is presented in the form of what we often hear as limiting belief systems. Right. And we know those are bad, right? But I think what we don't fully understand is the fact that they come from largely from mental models and mental models are things that help us do many useful things like drive a car successfully from A to B and kind of go on autopilot, you know? And so there are times when going on autopilot is necessary and useful. And these mental models help us to perceive our place in the world and how we can contribute. And they help to negotiate our relationships. They're not all bad. And they start forming from the minute we are born, because it's all of the perceptions and observations and things that we're told and that we absorb. The problem is when we allow those mental models to limit the way we perceive of ourselves or our capabilities. And we see this happen even in technology. So if you look back at any piece of technology that has been introduced in the last hundred plus years, someone who was quite prominent came out and said, that will never work, no one's ever going to want that. That was said about the television, that was said about the personal computer, that was said about the cell phone, all these things that we can't imagine any intelligent person <laughs> saying now because we've had our sort of collective social mental model, cultural social model, mental model has been shifted now. Mm. But that wasn't always the case. And so something really interesting happens when you start to push back actively on your own mental models, when you disrupt your assumptions, which is something that startups do all the time. They say, okay. Cars. All right. People buy cars. People commute in their cars. What if people stopped buying cars? What if they all just shared cars? You know, what if the daily commute was no longer the daily commute? What if people didn't even drive their own cars anymore? And that's where you have things like the self-driving car industry. Things that we used to think were just crazy sci-fi become the stuff of reality because people started pushing back on what seemed possible, good, desirable And that's something that I think we have to actively do to answer your question, to not get stuck in those very rigid sort of corrals of our mental models, where we think if I don't do this, I'm a failure. If I step outside of this, my whole life might crumble. And honestly, none of that is true because one of the big things we have to do is reassess how we define failure. And is it a bad thing to fall down? You know, Silicon Valley even has FailCon, a conference <laughs> where they celebrate failure. It is a badge of honor. But, and I think this is really important, it's not just about failing. It's about failing with the emotional intelligence to be able to actively reflect on what went wrong, why, and how you can make it better in the future. Yeah, and so, so if you- fail
0: forward. Right?
1: Exactly. If you omit that active reflection component, you're not going to fail up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this. And I think it's so important in a world that's changing more rapidly than ever that we check our mental models, as, as you call them, and really make sure they're serving us. I love this idea. And you, you have so many reviews about your book on the back of your book talking about how it's such a cool approach. John Lee Dumas said something really nice about your book and how it's like, yeah, treat your life like a startup. It's so obvious that that's the mental model we need to adapt right now. Yeah.
1: Not to say that Silicon Valley is perfect or that <laughs> I that everyone in it Sure. I and mean, by the way, not everyone in it applies it to their personal life. Sure. Right? Here's the big thing is that I think professionally, we often, if we're not entrepreneurs, we go on autopilot in a lot of ways. We think, Oh, I've gone to law school. I married my college sweetheart. I did all these things, right? I've checked the boxes. I'm safe, Mm -hmm. you know? And what we find is often a, you're not safe and b, that level of coasting often doesn't lead to happiness Mm -hmm. long-term. And so I think this idea that, you know, we need to be more proactive in the way we feel that our personal lives unfold in much the same way that some people are with their careers, you know? You wouldn't think that a job was just going to come, like a recruiter is gonna come knock on your door and say, hey, I'd love to offer you a fantastic package at, at this company, it'll be your dream job. And yet when it comes to many aspects of our personal lives, We think that's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen that way, it's not meant to be. That's pretty disempowering.
0: You know, it's funny you say that because I hear that all the time with my fitness coaching, what I do and people reaching out. They're like, I've been working out for a month. I can't see my abs yet. Or they have these goals like, well, there's two months left in the year, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. And they're even have that much weight to really lose, right? You know, they just want these fast results. And where do you think that thinking comes from this instant gratification where we want to get rich quick, we want our abs in a week so we can look good at the pool party? I mean, where does that instant gratification mindset come from? Do you think?
1: I think maybe two things come to mind. One is we see some kind of fluke success story marketed to us because that's all uh, they show
0: in the media, right? The unicorns, right. yeah.
1: That's right, and that happens in so many different areas. Where and and you know some of these might be celebrities that dedicate a month to just working on their bodies, and they have the best help in every capacity from their trainers to their nutritionists and that costs a lot of money that requires a lot of dedication and the average person doesn't have that it takes more than just mental fortitude you know yeah, <laughs> sometimes you actually need resources and so i think we need to be a little more gentle with ourselves about that the reality of those situations i think social media certainly is a contributor i think things become conflated and and what is reality and what isn't and and people presenting A very exaggerated version of what actually happening and not emphasizing, hey, by the way, this was really hard and it sucked and it took took a lot to get to this place. I think those are two things that, that definitely lower our capacity for the work it takes to reach these desired milestones.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, sometimes I'm on Facebook and I'll see people and I'm like, man, what am I doing with my life? And then though things <laughs> are actually going pretty well. But, you know, yeah. it's it's hard. You know, you gotta stay away from that and you gotta wonder those people who are really putting on the show or if they're not just trying to market something to you, either to sell you something or just to make themselves feel better. I'll tell you, I train all my multimillionaire clients, not one I don't think any of them or on Facebook, or if they do, they have nothing going on. The people who are very wealthy tend not to do that at all, unless it's specifically for business purposes. That's what I've found in my experience here, in Miami Beach.
1: I agree. And and it's something that I have personally struggled with, because from a personal perspective, I would prefer to pretty much not be on social media at all, except for perhaps Twitter, because I find some of the conversations that happen on there to be really compelling and interesting. And there's this whole new subgenre of Twitter comedy, which can be quite hilarious, where you have people like Patton Oswalt and um, different individuals who are writers for comedy shows and things, who are able to create things and 140 characters that are, are hilarious, you know? So for the conversations... To keep abreast of certain articles that I might miss otherwise, which circulates there, I think in a little bit different way, at least in the people that I follow, not to go too much down a rabbit hole with this, it keeps me in the loop of things in a way where even if I didn't post anything, I would get value out of it. And I don't find there's as much of a look at me mentality. It's more an exchange of ideas. So that's when I think I would want to be on personally, but I do feel immense pressure to create... Social media presence because of the work that I do, when honestly, I would desire very little of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know you, we're Facebook friends, and you don't push, post much there at all. Yeah. And, and you even have a part of your book where you talk about that. If you're listening right now and you like, what you're hearing, I highly suggest you check it out. Like I said, I got the book yesterday and the intro had me hooked though. It was just a well-told story and a relatable story. And then I love the way you also talked about, and we went into this, the mental models of success, but so many people think that businesses can't be built like, oh, that's for these guide either geniuses or whoever they are. These are the business guys and they make businesses and and they become very successful, but there's no way I can do that or you can do that. But you talk about the statistics and how people are becoming successful. It's simply a matter of learning uh, and doing the right things and tweaking. But you also talk about relationships and I'm really curious, what made you take such a holistic approach to like the startup your life And why relationships?
1: Before I answer that, just as a quick aside to your last very good point, you know, people are becoming successful and they aren't all becoming successful in their 20s. And that is a myth because we see a few of these college dropouts that are the 25-year-old multimillionaires in Silicon Valley. And we think that's the norm and we're washed up if we become (laughs) in our 30s, 40s, or, you know, even beyond (laughs) If we haven't already done that. And I think that's really dangerous because statistically, the majority of entrepreneurs that are really doing well, they're hitting that stride in their 40s. And there is an increasing number of people who are not even entering that phase until much later in life. And we have these baby boomers who are hitting retirement at an age where they're still so physically capable and thriving. And they're like, I got another 30 years. I'm going to do something. You know, I'm not just going to play golf every day. <laughs> so that's, I think, an important point for people that are over twenty five yeah, <laughs> that absolutely. might be listening When it comes to relationships, you know, relationships, it's one of my favorite topics, actually, because I a, it's the number one thing that makes us happy in life. And so it's serious business. And the people we choose, as we have been reminded by all sorts of gurus, the people we choose to associate ourselves with, help to really define how we live our lives, how healthy we are, you know, that stuff is very contagious and whether we're happy. So I think relationships are too often dismissed as frivolity Mm. and they are anything but that. And I think that to that end and to an earlier point I made, we too often dismiss our relationships as something that happens to us that we are sort of powerless in, that we wait and Mr. or Miss Wright walks up to us and it all becomes a romantic comedy or drama of sorts and that's it. And if that doesn't happen, then we aren't one of the chosen ones or we're just unlucky in love and we're cursed and we feel terrible about ourselves. And I just refuse to buy into that narrative and I think we're better than that. In the book, I use the term Love Santa, which I cannot take full credit for because it comes from an easily forgettable romantic comedy, Kate and Leopold, starring Hugh Jackman and Meg Ryan. And in it, there's this montage in which Hugh Jackman talks to Meg Ryan about being unlucky in love. And she says, you know, I think it's all this myth of a Love Santa. And essentially the Love Santa is, and it's a great quote, and I I do it, more justice in the book, but it's this really terrific moment and this really great term because we are sold the narrative of the one. What percentage would you guess of Americans believe in the one?
0: Ooh, I would go with probably 60 to 70 percent, somewhere in that neighborhood.
1: Yeah, it's over 70 percent. And men, it ranks slightly higher. No way. Really?
0: Really? Wow. Yes.
1: And as a woman who has done her fair share of dating, I can tell you this has definitely been my experience that it's not, you know, maybe women spend more money to go to movies on these topics sure. uh, and more vocal it,
0: about it, perhaps. Yeah. But, yeah. But,
1: still a lot of men still believe there is a one. And what happens when there's just a one? Well, that means you don't really have to work. You don't have to work to find them and you don't have to work on the relationship once you get there. And that's as anyone who's ever been in a relationship will tell you <laughs> and wondered why it failed. That formula doesn't work. And so I'm more of a fan of set mihais perspective. And as some of your listeners may know, he's the flow guru. He's like the father of positive psychology. And he believes that the way you find flow in relationships is not too dissimilar from the way you find flow in the rest of your life. And it's about creating depth and being present, being present over and over again and recommitting to that person and having the longevity, the discoveries that you make about the other person over time be part of what excites you. And you certainly pair that with novelty, Mm. whatever that means in your life, whether it's like literal kink or whether it just means like going on an adventurous trip together, you know? So it's the depth and the novelty that come together. And I use this formula that actually a friend of mine said had guided her in her relationship, her marriage. And that's that you have a feeling and you make a choice. And I think too often, again, we're like, I need to be practical about finding a mate or I want them to be everything in my life. And I think if we pare it down and take this kind of MVP approach, which is the Silicon Valley term for minimum viable product, what's the core thing you need, right? What are your non-negotiables? Stick with that and then go with that feeling that you have and then... Follow Chink Set Me High's advice and recommit over and over and explore all the gritty, juicy, dirty depths of what you can learn about each other and yourself and the process. And, and there's a lot to be valued and that can be very satisfying in that.
0: Yeah, that reminds me this discussion of the sex drugs in Silicon Valley it wasn't really a documentary, but it was a series of interviews. In fact, Dave Asprey was was on one of it talking about smart drugs, but they got into the relationships in Silicon Valley. And it was yeah. these all these very successful, very smart people were having to do what you're talking about to to stay present in, in their relationships. So I'll put a link to that. CNN yeah. Money did it, so it wasn't on like a late night you know, HBO After Hours thing. It was like CNN money. I think it was very fascinating. I want to ask you uh, also a little bit about the the thing we talked about before we hopped on. You actually said, oh yeah, we somehow we got into pickup artists and you actually talk about how you defend them in the book. And that's a, maybe some people, I think most people have heard of pickup artists by now, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you view pickup artists and, and why it's important for the guys, and perhaps what would be the analogous thing that women could do?
1: Mm-hmm. Pickup artists, first of all, can be bad and they can be good, just like every other profession, approach, person in this world. And the ones that I like to say are using their powers for good. I think are actually doing both themselves and largely females a service. One of the reasons for that is that they are largely analog in a digital world. So they are, for lack of a better phrase, you have to have balls to approach (laughs) someone in person, in a world where, you know, there might be digital pokes and flirtations, but to actually physically approach someone. And this used to be the norm. It's gone by the wayside, and so it's disarming for women, and it demonstrates a lot about a guy when it's done. Now, one thing women can do in those situations is to allow themselves to be receptive to it. If you're in a social context and you're hiding behind your phone, and then you complain that no one, that you don't have a thriving, dingy life, you know,
0: <laughs>
1: we have a disconnect. <laughs> so, so I think honestly, you know, one of the things I defend about pickup artists is even if you don't want to go out with the person, they generally are approaching you if they're not doing the negging, which of course is, you know, launching insults to make you feel that you have to impress them. So that would be not using your powers for good. But assuming they're doing what a lot of pickup artists do is they, they compliment you. They ask you to talk about yourself. They take interest in who you are. That is not the worst thing to happen to you probably in your day. And even if you say no to them, you feel a bit of a confidence boost. You're feeling pretty good. And even if you you say no, but you do it with grace and kindness, that person feels good about themselves as well, because they're not disillusioned into thinking that every woman they talk to is going to sleep with them or marry them. But, you know, they're putting themselves out there. And I would say to women, what are you doing to put yourself out there in that way that's really bold? And I think, you know, one of the people I interviewed for the book who prefers to describe himself as a dating coach said... You know, we hire professionals for pretty much everything in our lives. We might get a trainer. We hire a plumber. You know, we know our limitations in so many other areas. And yet, when it comes to our dating lives, we feel like we should have it all figured out or there's yeah. something
0: with like us. Or some magical so- forces at work, right? That's going right. to bring us That's- together.
1: Either we're naturals, which not everyone is a natural. And that's one of the key things that pickup artists work off is there's the naturals and then there's everybody else. And most people fall into the everybody else category, Sure. Uh, you know, so, so once we say, okay, this stuff isn't just going to come to me and I probably can be more adept at the skills that I apply to this very important area of my life, you know, the happier and the more successful I'll probably be in this department.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting to hear. And so many women have a negative view, probably because that's what gets played in the media with uh, Absolutely. all the, the situations with the terrible pickup artist guys. I actually went down that road for a while. I don't really talk about it too much. Ended up pulling out because I feel like, well, this is just basically learning social skills with some flirting involved. So I'll just focus on that instead of hanging out with the guys with the, the weird haircuts and the, <laughs> the, you know, all the things they're right. doing to Peacock and stand out. That's
1: right. But That's it was right. super
0: useful for a, a part of my life. And, and it's cool to hear you talk about that and, and how you put it in to the book. Well, Anna, I know you got a call coming up and I feel like, you know, we could go on for quite some time just getting into all the wonderfully titled chapters <laughs> of your book. So many cool things. But if someone wants to get the book, is it ready for pre-order? Should they go to Amazon? Where should they go to find it?
1: Absolutely. It is available for pre-order. And that's something that they can either find on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or their favorite indie press they can I'll give you a link so it'll be up on your site and they can also go to my site which is just my first and last name dot icom and they can access it there as well and I will add that in addition to being able to pre-order the book there will be a bunch of different bonuses they can get if they do pre-order. And I've also created a video series for people who want to dig in deeper and have more personalized attention to this path that they're going on. That also is available via
0: my website. Very cool. So I'll have both the links up on the show notes for this episode. So you'll get the website link and well I'll put up a link to the book to pre-order it. It's very cool. I'll talk a little bit about it more on the podcast as I go through it. It's really cool. I just love that that take. It's so modern and fresh and very much needed. So Anna, is there anything else that I didn't ask you that we didn't talk about that you want to bring up before we wrap this up?
1: You know, I guess I would just say that this was the book that I needed but couldn't find. And I hope that it fills that gap for a lot of other people.
0: Very cool. Well, Anna, thanks so much. It was a pleasure connecting with you again. And thank you so much for your your wisdom, your knowledge, but most importantly, your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Wow, what a cool interview. And let me tell you, I wouldn't be surprised if this book launch takes Dr. Anna Akbari to the next level. It's such a cool concept. It's a well-written book. I've been reading it. The story's fantastic. The ideas are fantastic. And even more importantly, they're super relevant to this day we live in this modernized age where disruption is happening everywhere. We need to be quick. We need to be agile. We need to be flexible and adaptable. So if you'd like to pre-order Start Up Your Life, Hustle and Hack Your Way to Happiness, make sure you go to anakbari.com. That's A-N-N-A-A-K-B-A-R-I.com. You can also go to Start Up Your Dot life so that's one word start up your dot life okay check it out it's a fantastic book fantastic concepts and remember if you want to get in on our sale make sure you go check out our store slash store for the meal plan if you want to see what you should actually be eating or fitness and nutrition made simple for busy people the video course we put together. Uh, Don't forget to get your biohack guide and sign up for the Co strength waiting list if you want to be part of the coaching group that is just, this is going to explode. It's helping so many people. Everyone who is applying it is getting results, every single person, okay? And that's partly because all the problems that come up, whether you get sick, whether an exercise isn't working for you, whether you feel something in your joint and you need an exercise substitution, I'm in there. I'm quick with a solution. That's what I do. I solve your problems and help you get things handled. Again, legendarylifepodcast.com. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Anna Akbari and I'll speak to you soon.